with me to John's Gospel. Once again, let's stand for the reading of God's Word from John 16. John 16 and verse 23. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked me nothing in my name. You have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. As far the word of God, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of the word. Father, we are your people. We are assembled in your name. We rejoice that you have received and welcomed us because of the merits of Christ and his completed work. We thank you that even now he makes intercession for us, and that your spirit is at work in our hearts that we would be worshipers of the living and true God. Fathers, we continue as we come now to the preaching of the word by your appointment at your command that you would honor yourself through the preached word. Father, we are all sinners. We are frail vessels. But Lord God, that your spirit would be at work, both in the one who preaches and in those who hear. Christ would be magnified, that we would hear our Redeemer's voice, that we'd be built up in him and that he'd be glorified, that you would call sinners to repentance, and that you would comfort your people in sorrow. And Lord, above all, let us see Jesus in his glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're drawing to the end of the Upper Room Discourse, and what we hear is Jesus making promises that tie into how he began. Um, as often as a speaker speaks, he begin at uh, a point, lay out what he's going to do and then do it, and then in some sense a summary, and that's what we find Jesus doing. We find some additional promises also that prove John's statement that he opened with. In John 13, 1, something of a uh, preface to the upper room, John records concerning Christ, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's what we see unfolding in this passage, we saw how Jesus stepped down from his position of honor at the table to perform the task of a slave. He washed his beloved disciples' feet. He told them of his coming departure to his father's house, even as we've just heard near the end of this discourse, and that he was going to prepare a place for them. He promised that he would return and gather them to himself, that where he was, they would be also. Jesus revealed to them that to know him was to know the Father. He taught them about prayer. He promised that they could ask the Father anything in his name, and he will do it. He revisits that here in this last portion. Jesus promised the coming of a helper who would give them peace and teach and equip and guide them as they wrote the remainder of the word of God. Jesus promised that if they were to abide in him as the branch abides in the vine, then they would bear good fruit for the Father's glory. That promise is still true for us today. 
when we abide in Christ. Jesus was direct, living in Christ and for Christ in the world. A world that hates him would result in persecution, suffering, affliction, and sorrow. There's a cost of discipleship. However, he also will supply all our needs to sustain us through these days. And particularly, he gives us the Holy Spirit. Even as we were praying for the persecuted church moments ago, God goes forth by his Spirit to comfort those who are even now afflicted for the name of Christ. In order for all of this then to come to pass, it required that Jesus must leave them for a little while. The cross, death, the tomb awaited him. And although this was sorrowful, their joy would be, their sorrow would be turned into joy. This brings us to our text this morning. It flows out of the realities of Jesus' death and his resurrection. With this resurrection, Jesus opens a new day, a new era in the history of redemption. The seed of the woman is about to crush the serpent's head. And when he has done so, he will grant Adam's race full access to the Father through Christ, our victorious Savior. Sin has resulted in man being driven out of the garden. Remember how God drove him out, drove them out, set the angel at the entrance with a flaming sword lest they re-enter. But God had a plan to bring man back to him. And indeed, the way to the Father is through the Son, is through the blood of the Son. He is the one who opens the way to the Father through his soul-cleansing blood, his life-converting blood. And he brings us to the Father. And what we see is this grand theme of the Scriptures is Exodus. It's one of the reasons I want to go from John into Exodus next is that this is a theme that endures. And here we see the culmination. It is through what Jesus is on the very threshold of doing that he's going to the cross so that Exodus can occur, that indeed we can be brought as sinners into access access to God. We come with full relationship with the Almighty. Wonder of wonders, oh, blessed and glorious truth that we can have relationship with God not cowering before him under his wrath, for that has been removed. Not coming uh, merely to run around and do his will as servants, indeed we shall, but coming as children to the Father because of what Christ has accomplished. God is our Father. He delights in us. He welcomes us. He blesses and keeps us. This is all accomplished by Christ. Indeed, in Christ, we are brought back into a better place than the Garden of Eden. We are brought in to dwell with God and never to be removed, never to be driven out again because Christ has finished his work. This morning we want to look at four main themes. Uh, Certainly there's overlap because they're intertwined. First we want to consider that Jesus gives us a relationship with the Father. Talk about asking the Father. Consider that Jesus gives two new promises about prayer. And then praying in Jesus' name. So we're talking about a relationship with the Father. One of our great themes is prayer. Because that's one of the ways we relate to the Father. So we begin with Jesus gives us a relationship with the Father. Verse 23 begins with, and in that day. What is this day? Well, it's the day of resurrection. This is that after a little while. That day, when they will be reunited to Jesus before then he is taken up to the Father. It is the day of the resurrection. Everything will be different then in that day. Sin will be vanquished. Our foe will 
be defeated. The penalty for sin will be paid. Salvation secured forevermore for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is teaching the disciples that that day will bring with it significant changes. Significant changes for them in how they relate to him and how they relate to the Father. Again, he says, in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Now, Jesus uses two different words for ask. If you have the New King James, you find them translated both ways. In that day that you ask me, and then he says, I say to you that whatever you ask the Father. Those are two different words in the Greek. And I find it preferable to make a distinction and also to make it clear the nature of them. The first one would be better translated, in that day you will inquire of me nothing. Whereas the second ask is more the idea of petition. It's what we do in prayer. That's the nature of the words. So this is what he says. Jesus is saying that they will no longer inquire of him. And it's been true that Jesus is known to answer to their questions and he's answered them. But he's telling them after the resurrection they will no longer be making such inquiries. Now think about it. They made inquiries just a little bit ago. They had this confusion. What does he mean? In a little while, you will not see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. And because I go to the Father, they, were, they had questions. They were wanted to make inquiries. They didn't understand it. And we've seen parables and many other things they did not understand as well. But Jesus is saying that because after the resurrection, children, you can think of it this way, all the pieces of the puzzle be in place. You know, something about a puzzle laid out, you're maybe halfway through, and you got some sense of what the picture's going to look like when it's done. But when all the pieces are in place, then you say, ah, aha, I see what it is. And Jesus' completed work on the cross will bring all the pieces together concerning the matter of redemption. The pictures, the picture that the prophets and even Christ have spoken of will be complete. Because you know that the prophets were told by Paul, I believe it is, that as they were prophesying concerning the Christ, that these days that these disciples are in uh, and the work that is about to be accomplished, they, they wondered what did it mean. And they understood that it was for uh, future generations, that there would be the fulfillment, the culmination, and they longed to look into these things. They had inquiries. And Jesus said that would no longer be the case in that day. You think of... Uh, the eunuch that uh, was returning to Ethiopia that Philip joined by the Spirit's direction, reading from Isaiah 53, and he had inquiries. Who's, who's the prophet talking about? Is it he's talking about dying for his sins or is someone dying for the sins of others? And Philip opened the scriptures to him because Philip had an understanding and explained it to him. Is it not true that when prophecy is fulfilled, the clarity comes? Children, have you ever heard a riddle? I know your kids like to find riddles and ask them of adults, and sometimes we say, I remember I heard that one a long time ago. I don't remember it now. But then when you hear the answer to the riddle, you go, ah, of course. Now it makes sense to me. Well, so it is that in that day the clarity will come. The, the veil that is rent in the temple opening the way to God also is like a veil being removed of all those things that uh, that were to take place. It's as though these prophecies and the types and the shadows, it was as though there was a, a veil laying over them, and with the completion of the work of Christ, it's removed. 
these men in the upper room of Jesus, they knew something was coming. I don't think it's a stretch to say that they knew something big was coming. But they had so many questions. He's going to suffer, die. The religious leaders are going to arrest him. What? How can this be? Because they had their own expectations of what he had come to do, and they lacked clarity. So many questions. And Jesus saying, in that day, after my resurrection, you will no longer have these inquiries to make. Your questions will be answered. Salvation will be secured. And the Holy Spirit then will be given on the day of Pentecost. Jesus then goes on to speak of asking the Father, here is the great change that Jesus' cross will usher in. Jesus, when his work is completed, opens the way to the Father. And all those who believe on Jesus for salvation, what is it Jesus says? You can ask the Father in Jesus' name, and the Father will give it. Isn't that not incredible? Children, you can go and ask your father for a number of things, and there's many things that's just beyond your father's ability to give to you. But we can go to the Father, and he will give us all good things, things for his glory. This is a fundamental change. Consider, again, these 11 men that are with him. For three years, Jesus found them where they were. He called them away from their work, away from their vocations. He said, come follow me. And for three years, they followed him. They relied upon him for everything. They've looked to him for everything. And in the course of that time, they've seen Jesus seeking the Father. It's recorded in the gospel that he would go off early in the morning, sometimes praying throughout the night. Jesus was going to the Father. Jesus was seeking the Father as the God-man. Jesus has told them that he's returning to the Father. It was incredibly troubling for them. This one who they follow, their Lord, their Master, they rely upon, whom they have seen astounding and amazing things from. He's going away. And he tells them again in this passage that we read. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. How perplexing this must have been. And so in that context, he says, ask. Again, verse 23, in that day you will inquire of me nothing. Most surely I say to you, whenever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Here we see that Jesus' completed work will fundamentally change the relationship of the disciples to the Father. He will be their Father through the Son. It's one of the things that the Jews, they were very reluctant to consider God as Father, to speak of Him as Father. They, they were fearful to even take up His name. They would often just refer to Jehovah, the covenant faithful Lord, as we know Him, as He's revealed in Scripture. They would just refer to the name. They were so fearful. There was, there was no relationship. The idea that God could be as a father. But indeed, this is what Jesus brings. And indeed, we should understand that way. My friends, if we were pagans in the world, living in our sin and rebellion, how audacious, how arrogant to think that we could speak of the God of the universe as our father. That's only true through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is telling these men because of his completed work and the hope of their salvation that God is their father. This is the very thing that Jesus told Mary in the garden after the resurrection. She first encounters him. She thinks he's the gardener. Tell me, where have you taken laid his body? And then he speaks to her. Mary. She falls at his feet in worship. She's clinging to his feet in love and adoration, worshiping him. And what does he tell her? John records this later on in chapter 20. Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father, but I go to my, bre- but go to my brethren and say to them, 
I'm ascending to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Isn't that remarkable? They would have known, yes, he's our God. But if the first thing he tells them, I'm going to my Father and your Father, there's a fundamental transformation that's taking place in that day. God, the Almighty, is now known to those who are in Christ as Father. It's considered application here. These men, along with those who made up the 120 that would later be in an upper room, perhaps this same upper room, were the beginnings of the New Testament church. These promises to them are also to all who believe their witness concerning the Christ, all those who have come to the Father through the Son. We are heirs of these promises. My friends, God, the God of the universe, God Almighty, is your Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many in the church who have grown up with strange relationships with their fathers, estranged relationships, or with no father present, or the idea of father is offensive. But my friends, through Christ, we have access to such a father. Remember, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that we, sinners, unworthy, undeserving, all we deserved was the wrath of God, that we could come to the father through the son. Jesus has opened the way that you can have this relationship. As Adam's children, our relationship with God is fundamentally changed because of Christ's completed work. He gives us the right to ask the Father anything in Jesus' name. And so we want to consider, secondly, building on this, asking the Father. Verses 23 progress into 24. He says, until now. You see, here's this, this transition. In that day, and he says, until now you have asked nothing in my name. They've asked the Lord. They, they, Christ is right with them. That they want something, they ask him. But now he says, up till now you've asked, he's implied, the Father nothing in my name. And now he says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be filled. As new Christians, we often want to be taught to pray. And indeed, we should be taught to pray. That should be something that we do as disciple makers. We teach new believers how to pray. And indeed, many have asked me, uh, what is prayer and how do I pray? Well, Jesus answers this question in this passage with a single word. Jesus explains what prayer is in this passage with a single word. He uses it five times. Prayer is asking of God. There it is. Prayer is asking of God. For this asking to be effective, indeed, it must be in Jesus' name. To pray in Jesus' name necessarily means that we have saving faith. We can't take up the name of Christ if, indeed, we don't belong to Christ. There were some who sought to cast out demons in the name of Jesus that Paul served, they weren't servants of Christ. And the demons tore them up. It's a dangerous thing for unbelievers to seek to appropriate Christ's name for themselves. But the good news is that if indeed we are in Christ, the name of Jesus, indeed Jesus himself gives us access to the Father. The Father would hear us. The Father who loves us will grant that which we need. God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. But he always hears the prayers of his children when they come in Jesus' name. Now, Jesus is not denying his priestly intercession for us in heaven. 
but it simply means that after the resurrection, in that day, his disciples may pray directly to the Father. He's actually looking forward to, after he's ascended, as he is right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us, for his people. No longer will they rely upon Jesus. They will come with their needs to the Father. They will ask the Father for what they need. And, and there's further teaching on prayer uh, that the, the Father knows what we need before we ask. And some might say, well, then why do we need to ask? It's part of a relationship. It's drawing near to God. We have this access. We learn God's faithfulness. Their prayers and our prayers are made by the aid, then, of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus has taught that in this passage of the role of the Holy Spirit, who helps us to pray, as we saw in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray even when we don't have words for what's in our, what's in our hearts. Sometimes we're, we're conflicted. We don't know what to say. Sometimes we're confused. We don't know what to say. Sometimes we're just we're so overwhelmed with anguish, maybe for our own sin or some situation that's unfolded around us, and it's just groanings. And the Holy Spirit, who's in us, understands those groanings, and He makes our prayers unto God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. Now, when Jesus says "whatever," as it is there in verse 23, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father. We cover this because this is not the first time we've heard Jesus teach in this very upper room discourse. We've looked at the matter of prayer. But just a reminder, he certainly means that whatever's for God's glory, whatever's for our good, and what is for the building up of the kingdom of God on earth, even as Jesus taught us in a prayer that, that uh, we have taken up ourselves. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so our prayers uh, should always be uh, in that vein. They should always be governed by this reality. I'm going to borrow from, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting directly, a, a John Gerhard, what he says concerning prayer. The benefit of prayer is so great that it cannot be expressed. You ever thought about that? Sometimes it's like, uh, you know, I don't know what else to do, I'll just pray. Or we've done everything we do, I guess we should pray. It's such a devaluating of this tremendous thing. We talk to the Almighty through the Son. We make our requests known to God, and He hears us. Think about that. It's astounding. And this John Gerard is, Gerhard is right. The benefit of prayer, of prayer is so great it cannot be expressed. He goes on to say, prayer is like the dove that when sent out returns bringing the olive leaf, namely peace of heart. Prayer is like the golden chain which God holds fast. It will not let go until he blesses. Prayer is like Moses' rod which brings forth the water of consolation out of the rock of salvation. Prayer is like Samson's jawbone which smites down our enemies. Prayer is like David's harp before which... The evil spirits fly. Prayer is the key to heaven's treasure. Surely we could preach for months on this topic of prayer. Just as we reflect right now, I want us to consider in this matter of prayer, the the access that Christ gives us to the Father, to God, the God who spoke and created all things of nothing, we have access to this God as our Father. Do you see 
the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is because of him. It's not because of any merits we have. It's not because uh, any uh, value that we can hold to negotiate with God. This is because of Christ. Do you see the, the beauty of Christ? Who can be compared to him? It is Christ has done this. Who else can bring us to God? There is no one else who can bring us from the wilderness of the world back into the garden of God, to bring us from disobedience and rebellion apart from God back into full fellowship and communion with God as our Father. Behold his majesty. Our Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. Do you see the majesty, the beauty, the sweetness, the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me just suggest some tools to use for prayer. Children, you can do this. Children, here's something simple. You know, there's a book in the Bible called Acts. How is Acts spelt? A-C-T-S. Many of you have heard. There's an acronym, a reminder how to pray, a a format for prayer. And and it's very similar to what we find in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us. We begin with adoration. Our Father, hallowed be your name. And then we move to confession, even as the order of our service. We, we come before God and we invoke his name that he would meet with us. And then we hear his law, we confess our sin. And so our prayers can then have this confession of sin. And then we can move to thanksgiving when we consider the gratitude which we should have for all that God has done for us, the chief of all, giving us his only begotten son to save us from our sins. And so we express thanksgiving. And then... We come to our supplications, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, acts. Or let me suggest another helpful tool. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was getting his hair cut by his barber, something he did regular. We, we can imagine the things they must have talked about because it's reported that one day the, the barber says, Brother Martin, how do I pray? Teach me to pray, something to that effect. And so Brother Martin instructed him, and you can see that instruction. There's a little book. It's still in print today, A Simple Way to Pray. And what Martin Luther suggested that we do is we use something that we should all know. Do you have the Ten Commandments memorized? The Lord's Prayer memorized? The Apostles' Creed memorized? There are three tools for prayer. Take up the Ten Commandments. Begin with the first one, and there you're, you're adoring. Consider who God is. You should have no other gods before me. And you can just linger there in your prayer, following the Ten Commandments, celebrating God, adoring God, ascribing unto him the glory to his name, and then considering the way that he is to be worshipped, and then his name, and make your way down through the Ten Commandments, and surely there will be times for confession of sin. Even as we adore God, we confess and we're thankful, express our gratitude for his law and, and the times that he's enabled us to keep that law, and thus we use the Ten Commandments. It's a simple way to pray. Likewise, the Apostles' Creed, we confess these great truths about our God and Father and the Spirit. And we can pray through the Apostles' Creed and likewise in the Lord's Prayer. It was given as a model for prayer. It's not that we should just run through it over and over and over again as some teach and that it just becomes a worn-out relic, but indeed it is a way that we should pray, the format in which we should pray, and we can use that in our prayers. Let me just add to that. Pray with your eyes wide open. Open the scriptures. As you're reading the scriptures, you come to promises. Pray and claim them. 
You come to something that convicts you. Confess your sin. You see things that God has done. They're all through the scripture. Celebrate and praise this God of heaven. We do all this in Jesus' name. We do all this because Jesus has brought us to the Father. Jesus has given us access to the Father. Thirdly, I want to consider that Jesus gives us new promises about prayer. Find that in verses 25 through 27, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples in metaphors, parables, word pictures, figurative language, all through his ministry. There are many instances in the gospel where Jesus will teach a parable to the people, whether it's on a hillside or in some marketplace, and then the disciples will come to him in private and say, will you explain it to us? This is the inquiry. We don't understand it. Would you explain it to us? We have the example just before us in the previous passage where Jesus uses the word picture of a woman in labor pains and he talks about their suffering. In this farewell address, we've seen Jesus focus on his work of salvation and prayer. This seems to be the predominant theme. And although Jesus has pretty much given a summary of all that he has taught before us, there are two new promises about prayer here in this tale in, or, or at least a greater emphasis upon these two things. The first one deals with the disciples' lack of understanding, as we've said. Throughout the evening, the disciples have displayed an inability to grasp much of what Jesus is teaching them. Perhaps they found some comfort in their bewilderment that he was talking about that he is going to give them the Holy Spirit who's going to help them these things, but they've been pretty bewildered. The disciples' lack of spiritual understanding and competence will soon change, radically change, and it'll happen in that day. Even as the events are fulfilled, there will be a clarity. But as we've already explained, these two different words Jesus has used for asking the first translated as inquired, the second asking or petitioning. The first is about asking a question, the second is asking for a thing. And the coming of the Spirit will address their lack of competency in understanding. So I'm just summarizing what I've already said. But the Spirit will then also, as we learned two weeks, two sessions ago, back in verses 13 and following, that the Spirit will give, guard, and guide these men into all truth as they serve Christ to give his word to the church. You don't do that if you're still lacking understanding, if you're still bewildered. The Holy Spirit's going to grant that to them. And Jesus would have them to understand that in their prayer in that day, that that which they have not understood, they will understand. And it began then at the resurrection. But you know, after the resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with them before Pentecost. And what did he do in those 40 days? He instructed them. He opened their eyes. The Spirit is in them. He's given them understanding. These young members of this young church, and particularly these men, will be taught the Scriptures. We have a little bit of a snapshot of what that's like. What happened in those 40 days when we read what Luke records when Cleopas and his companion walked on the road to Emmaus. Luke records Jesus walking with them and beginning at Moses and all the prophets. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. As they walked along, he's weeping away their ignorance. He's clearing up their misunderstanding. He's bringing clarity to them about the various prophetic passages that spoke of him. I can only imagine that he spent time in Isaiah 
where the suffering servant, and that would have resonated. They've just witnessed it, and he's, they don't know it yet, but he's walking with them. The realities are now there. We also see a brief record that Jesus did just that. Turn with me to Luke 24. Sometimes you put a little marker in your Bible and it disappears. Luke 24 and verse 44. Then he said to them, These words which I have spoken to you while I was still with you, and all the things that must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Does that sound similar to the conversation he had with the two on the road to Emmaus? It's because it is. And then look at verse 45. Luke records, And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So even before he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he has done this. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead on the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Spirit. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with the power from on high. And so it is. The need to inquire about things not understood will no longer be necessary as it had been. Let me, I'm going to qualify that. But indeed, they would have the understanding. It's as though the scales fell off from their eyes. The Holy Spirit removed their confusion. Jesus even removed their confusion as he taught them in these days from the Scriptures. And we have proof that this reality took place because on the day of Pentecost, as preachers stood up, Peter stood up, Acts 2, and preached. What do we see? A comprehensive understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. Peter is drawing from various passages in the Old Testament, prophecies concerning the Christ, and explaining to the men of Israel that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. Peter grasps it, he understands it. And we see that it goes on to be so as we read the epistles. The ignorance, the confusion, the misunderstanding is taken away. So we no longer pray that way, but we pray to ask. We pray for the promises. Now, surely, the Scriptures are not altogether clear, are they? And so we do need to pray, asking for an understanding, but not as before. We don't dwell in the Old Testament period of time. We dwell after the cross. We have this clarity. The veil has been taken away. We no longer see us through a glass darkly. The clarity has come because the work of Christ is completed. And Jesus wants us to understand the Bible that we should pray, and we should pray for understanding when we read the Word of God. It's especially true when we encounter difficult passages. you remember the Apostle Peter, what he says about some of Paul's writings? He says they're hard to understand, as are other scriptures. You see, Peter recognized that Paul was writing, inspired by the Spirit. And Peter, even Peter, found some things difficult to understand. And so it is that we would pray for the Spirit to work in us there will be times when some of the Scripture's teachings will be hard for us to accept. And so we need to pray that the Lord would help us. So we should pray conf with confidence for help for, as Jesus promised. Jesus said, I will tell you plainly about my Father. Remember that everything that Jesus did was to bring us to the Father and to know the Father 
is to have eternal life, as we'll see in the next chapter. So this new aspect of prayer is not praying out of confusion and obscurity, as they once said. We pray now from clarity of the completed work of the cross. We pray now because we have the fullness of the Scriptures given to us. But the second promise that Jesus gives is that we pray, is that when we pray that we will experience joy through a life of prayer. We're going to touch on this briefly, my friends. I think this may be one of the most important things that we would hear. In verse 24, what does Jesus say? Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Because they've not been praying to the Father. They've just asked Jesus directly. And so it's, that's changing. And he said, you've asked nothing in my name. Now, shift, ask. That is, ask of the Father in the context. Ask the Father and you will receive what? that your joy may be full. Now, Jesus is not teaching that joy comes from merely having our prayers answered. That's true. But that's not the main point of what Jesus is saying. It's not that we have joy because we get things from the Father. We do find delight in that. No, Jesus is teaching that joy is in praying, which touches on what I just said before. Salvation is to know the Father. To be in relationship with the Father. Prayer is talking with God. Prayer is central to our relationship with the Father. This is what Jesus came to the earth to accomplish. To bring sinners home to God. To accomplish the exodus. To bring the children of Adam out of the world. Back into the presence of God. Into that sweet communion that Adam and Eve enjoyed before they sinned. And they died. And they were driven out. Jesus is coming to the world to bring us in. This is what John writes in his epistle, John, 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. See how this relates to this text? And has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. And he's not talking about Jesus, because listen to the next thing. In his Son... So the him is the Father, we may, that we may know him who is true and that we are in him is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life, to know him. I think all, is, all of us as believers would say, well, yeah, I know the Father. But do we live like that? Do we pray like that? Is there joy in our praying? Remember John 3.16. It is for this reason that God so loved the world. He loved the world that he gave his son. Not to keep people out of hell. Not to bring people into heaven. Those things are true. But he sent his son into the world to bring sinners to relationship with himself. This is I've answered questions for some of you. You know, Why doesn't God save us and just immediately sanctify us? God saves us to be in relationship with him. And if we just had it all together and we could do it all, how often would we look to the Father? We're to relate to the Father. We're to walk in relationship with the Father. We're to be praying continually, praying without ceasing. We're to be in this fellowship and communion with God. And that goes back to what it is to abide in Christ. We should be given to prayer. And indeed, Jesus is saying, this life of prayer is joy. To know the Father. I hope that some of you, I hope that all of you have experienced that in, in your prayers, the, the sweet communion, the fellowship that we can have with God when we draw aside into the private prayer closet and seek Him. The Father, through His Son and by the inner working of the Holy Spirit, brings us 
into relationship to him, to know him, to commune with him, to fellowship with him. Some of you are married. You may have to think back a little while, but think back with me to when you first met that one who is now your spouse. How much you enjoyed being with them. How you look forward to seeing them. And when you were with them, how much joy, how, how delightful it was to spend that time with them. How much more to spend that time with the Father. The relationship of all relationships. That's what Jesus came into the world to give us. Now, yes, he had to deliver us from our sin. He had to cleanse us from our guilt and the stain of sin. All of those things had to be brought about. But the goal was to bring us to the Father, to accomplish the final exodus. And the culmination of that will occur when Jesus comes with a shout and with the trump of the archangel of God. He comes and we will be gathered ever to be with the Lord, to know unhindered, unbridled fellowship, sweet communion with God. This is heaven. We have a foretaste of it here on earth as we pray. We find joy in praying to the Father. Notice the pronoun I use. Oh, that we would all pray more. Oh, that we would delight in this communion with the Father now on earth. Put down the phone. Turn off the computer, turn off the TV, whatever it is that distracts you, and bow down. I mean literally bow down on your face before the Almighty. Ask of Him. Adore Him, confess, make supplications, thanksgivings. Look to our God. Commune in fellowship with Him. Don't let arriving in heaven be the first time you talk to Him. I would say to you, if that's the first time that you pray is when you see God face to face, I think you will tremble before him. To be, to claim to be a Christian and to not pray. I don't know what the word for that is. It's wrong. How can you relate and say you have a relationship with God that you never talked to? How can you claim to be saved by Christ and you never talk to Jesus' Father? Indeed, it must begin with, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But let that not be your only prayer. Because he has had mercy on you and he has saved you from your sin, let your heart delight, revel, rejoice, exult in the presence of the Almighty, my friends. This is what Jesus came to do. This is the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's accomplished. Jesus had this as the Son of God. He had the sweetest communion and fellowship with the Father for all eternity past. And he stooped to take on the form of a servant so that he could bring us to his Father, that we can know that communion and fellowship with him. My friends, that's awesome. That's amazing. That's astounding that God would do that for us. Oh, that we would find joy in it. Yes, when we come praying, we stutter and we stammer. We struggle with our words. But know that even as we welcome our little children as parents, How much more does God welcome us? With all our imperfections, our inabilities, he delights in us. Finally, we conclude with what we've been saying all along, but just want to reflect on it in closing, praying in Jesus' name. In verse 28, Jesus says that he had come to earth. It was God coming down 
to dwell with men, as I've just said, Emmanuel, God with us. Some 2,000 years ago, these events that we are hearing about right now took place. As we said before, this is our religion is a historical religion. It's not just some fanciful meanderings of a, a deranged mind, as so many world religions are. These things happen. Jesus came. He accomplished something, and that which he accomplished endures today. We are to pray to the Father in Jesus' name exclusively. There is no other name given amongst men by which we must be saved. There is no other name by which you can draw near to the Father. It is a blasphemy and a preposterous and an in, in, uh, in insanity that the world today embraces this idea that any faith will get you to heaven. Access to the Father is only in Jesus' name, period. There's no other way. He is the way. He alone gives sinners access to the Father. And indeed, He gives us access to the Father. We approach as sinners to a holy God because of Jesus' blood. It speaks on our behalf. It's the only reason we have access to God is because of what was accomplished on the cross. And it is a certainty because there was that day. The day we mark today that Jesus, not being able, the, the, the death and grave cannot hold him, he came forth victorious and triumphant. Praying in Jesus' name then is to pray, as I've mentioned earlier, that our wills would align with his world. Were his will. We should always pray, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus has promised, Lord, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It is the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within God's people. By his Spirit, he is with us. O beloved children of God and of the Heavenly Father, if we would grasp the promise of what Jesus is saying here, our Father delights to meet our needs. But he has saved us to relate to him. And oh, that we would even go to him in prayer when we have no needs. Surely we always do. But with no times we've just come just to be with him. There's a number of you fathers here. You think back, maybe it just happened recently for some of you. You have younger children. Can you think, you're sitting on the couch, or maybe in your big comfortable easy chair, and here comes one of your children and they just curl up in your lap. Why are you here, my child? I just want to be with you. Isn't that a marvelous thing, Father, to have that happen? Our Father in Heaven delights when we just come and say, Father, I just want to be with you. I just want to bask in your presence. Just wrap your arms around me. Embrace me. Are you filled with sorrow? Ask the Father in Jesus' name, and he will give you the comfort of the good shepherd. Are you filled with anxiety? Ask the Father in Jesus' name, and the Prince of Peace will grant to you his perfect peace that passes all human understanding. Are sins getting the upper hand with you? Are you, are you thinking there's no way to rise above sin's oppression? Ask the Father in Jesus' name for the captain of your soul to ride forth and to deliver you and apply his precious blood that washes whiter than snow. Are you perplexed? Are you confused? Not knowing what to do in a tough situation, ask the Father in Jesus' name for the sovereign hand of the wonderful counselor to guide your way. Persist in prayer. 
wrestle in prayer. Pray with importunity. Pray without ceasing. Jesus' promise, child of the Father, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it. The Father loves you. Why? Jesus says, because you believed that Jesus came from the Father. That's at the heart of our salvation. We believe who Jesus is, and we believe upon his promises. On that night, 11 men stood on the threshold of the greatest cosmic battle ever fought and won. Jesus came out from the Father. He came into the world. God came into in flesh, Emmanuel. He came to crush our foe, sin, Satan, death, and the grave. That victory is won. He cried out, it is finished, was his pronouncement. And we celebrate and worship today on the first day of the week because Christ arose, making it clear that he is who he said he was and that he has accomplished all that his Father gave him to do. Now he has ascended to the right hand of his Father and your Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus has given us access to God Almighty. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do marvel and wonder at so great a salvation and so great a Savior. Father, that when we were rebels, usually strong and mighty kings and rulers uh, strike down rebels, they destroy them. For indeed, what is it that a king can do to a rebellious heart? Nothing but you, O God are infinitely greater, and in you, in your greatness and majesty, have provided a way of salvation that those who are rebels can now be your children. Father, we marvel and wonder at what you have accomplished, what you have given, what you have promised. Lord, forgive us for our prayerlessness. Forgive us for little time to pray. Forgive us for our misplaced priorities. Forgive us for being enamored with other ones and other things and finding our delight in that which is but a cheap bauble and a passing fancy. O Lord God, by your Spirit, enthrall our hearts, that we would draw near to our God, that we would have done with lesser things, and that we would seek the Almighty who is seated on high, who extends his arms, embraces us children of the father we bless you O god in jesus name amen